to have you with us this morning. Uh, and it's a, it's a great day to be visiting us if you're visiting because we're kicking off a brand new series in the Gospel of Mark. Um, the Gospel of Mark, I'm going to tell you a lot about it today. We're only going to be looking at the first three verses. Uh, in your bulletin, it says verses 1 through 8, but that's because in the beginning of the week, I thought I can get through all the eight verses, but uh, by the end of the week, I realized uh, we only could get through three. So we'll pick up in verse 4 next week and keep going. But if you have a Bible, would you please turn there with me, and we'll look at the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 where Mark says this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. This is the word of the Lord. So last Sunday on Easter, we discussed um, what it is to have an encounter with the risen Christ. And this is what we're after as we study any of the books of the Bible, really, if you think about it, is to have an encounter with the risen Christ. So if we were studying the Old Testament, uh, we would still expect an encounter of God, which would be pointing us to Jesus Christ. Um, But the Gospels, obviously, so powerfully take us to the very words of Jesus and to the person of Jesus. And so how fitting right after Easter for us to um, study about what it means to encounter the risen Jesus and then to go right into the Gospels. Um, The Gospels are the first four books of the New Testament, if you get there. And it's a little confusing if you're new to Christianity because there's there's Matthew, right, Mark, Luke, and John, and they're, they're all kind of, in a way, telling a similar story. And then later, uh, we move on to uh, different letters from Paul and various things. But as you open up the Gospels, what, what you realize is they're, they're telling a different, they're telling the same story, but in some ways from a different vantage point. So Mark, we'll be discussing today, is the steady diet that we'll be in for at least the next 12 months, and maybe longer. Um, one of our staff members on, at New Valley is a guy named John Griffith, and John uh, does our, our media, and uh, he does uh, worship arts kind of things and makes this room special, and he's our keyboard player. He does uh, all the lighting and, and gets things prepared for the media team and that kind of thing. Anyway, that's John. But what's unique about John, and, and we noticed when he joined our staff, was uh, how strange his eating habits are. Like, so... You know how like dogs and cats, it's so sad, like you just put this kibble in their bowl every day and you're just like, I know man, it's boring, but that's what you get, right? Well, that's John. So every, every day, John doesn't eat kibble, but he does eat sweet potato chili almost every single day for lunch. And I think he eats it for dinner and it wouldn't shock me if he ate it for breakfast. And so... It's got bacon in it, it's got sweet potato, of course, it's got ground beef, and it's got a bunch of vegetables. He's a very health-conscious guy, but he's also very regulated. So he eats sweet potato chili almost every day. However, there are moments where he'll break out and get crazy and like go get a sandwich with us or maybe some wings and, and dabble here and there in some other food source, but his main diet, sweet potato chili. So this year, the next 12 months at least, not exactly how long it will take. Our steady diet will be the sweet potato chili of the Gospel of Mark. And we will dabble. We'll go and, and stop for a moment and go get a sandwich or some other things from uh, other texts in the Bible and, and maybe some short series. But our steady diet 
will be the gospel of Mark. We need an authentic counter with the risen Jesus who was and is fully God and fully man. And we believe, like many churches, that the gospel of Mark is the very word of God, right? It's, it's literally God's word to us. And therefore, in a sense, for followers of Jesus, it serves as our authority. Ultimately, the Bible is a follower of Jesus' authority, a Christian's authority. And so we rest under that authority. And what I want to point us out to this morning is how important it is as we study the gospel of Mark together, whether you're a brand new follower of Jesus, whether you're investigating Christianity, or whether you've been a follower of Jesus for a long time, to get to the point where you finally say, I am going to rest under the word of God as it is. I'm going to accept it as my authority. That means I'm going to have to wrestle. It's going to be difficult at times. It will be challenging at times, but I'm going to do so. And one of the things that we say around here a lot that I wanted to bring up this morning is this, that until you accept the challenge of the Bible, you won't fully receive its comfort. So can we put that up there? Yeah. Until you accept the challenge of the Bible, you won't fully receive its comfort. There's a lot of fun stuff in the Bible, right? God is love. God is merciful. God is loving. God is slow to anger. He does not keep a record of wrongs. He forgives sins as far as the east is from the west. God is a God of comfort, steadfast love, covenantal faithfulness. If you put your hope in him, your sins are forgiven. I mean, who who does not want to embrace that? But the Bible also brings intense challenge to us. As we read the Gospel of Mark, for example, we'll hear the words of Jesus say things like, pick up your cross and follow me. Uh, If anyone will want to be first, then they should be last of all, servant of all. Love your neighbor as yourself. Not only your neighbor, but you should love your enemies as much as you love yourself. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And so these words like this will come out of the mouth of Jesus. He will confound us and challenge us about our marriages, about our inner life, about what it means to relate to anybody in relationship. He's going to challenge us. And here's the thing, in our culture, in our day and age, of course, we are so tempted to choose those things that we like from the text, right? And say, I will build my faith around this, but I'm not going to take the Bible so seriously that I'll choose all of it. I'm only going to choose those things that I like Take a little bit of this, a little bit of that, but the things that challenge me and that are hard, like love your enemies, pray for those that persecute you, the parts that get into the interior of my life and might actually challenge me to make a change in my life, eh, I'm going to reject those. But until you accept the Bible and just say, I'll receive it, you won't really have a relationship with God. You can't have a relationship with anyone unless it's a two-way conversation. If you're the only one speaking, if you're the only one choosing, if you're the only one making the decisions, then who's in charge? And as you read the Bible, you'll see that God is merciful and gracious and loving and so forth, and you'll also see the challenge. But when you need to be comforted the most, you won't be if you're picking and choosing. Why? Because I believe in you. You're smart people. (laughs) And you know what you're doing in that moment. You're creating a Jesus in your own image, not the risen Lord. 
You're creating a, a Jesus in your own image. You're, you're the one sort of creating what you'll accept and what you won't accept. And in those moments, if I will accept the comforting parts of the Bible, but I'll reject the challenging ones, you really have lost your ability to receive comfort from the Bible because you know in your heart of hearts that you are creating a Jesus in your own image. And when you get to a desperate place, a place of wilderness, which we'll talk about today, and you need the comfort of the Scriptures, they'll ring hollow. Because it has not actually been, it has not actually been your, your authority. This week I've been reading a commentator named Mary Healy, and it is fabulous. And she's been writing, she is a theologian and a scholar and has this beautiful commentary about the Gospel of Mark. And she says this about the Gospel of Mark. To become a follower of Jesus in that day was a radical decision, and it was. It could mean incurring disapproval or outright rejection from friends and family, and you know that was true. It could entail close fellowship with people one would have previously shunned. Think about that. The wealthy with slaves, the devout with the formerly decadent, Jewish nationalists with Roman soldiers. And for many Christians, Christian faith would result in imprisonment, torture, death, and even brutality in the Roman arena. And so Mark is calling us to follow Jesus. And as we listen to his words, it will be challenging, it will be comforting, but I'm pleading with us all, regardless of where you are in this journey of faith, to open up your heart more and more, to receive the scriptures as God's very words to you, and to begin to have a living relationship with God who wants to speak to us. Some background on the Gospel of Mark. Who was Mark? While none of the Gospel writers identify themselves, the earliest manuscripts that we have and all of the early church fathers in church history believe this was Mark. And the earliest manuscripts in Greek, it says, according to Mark, the Gospel according to Mark. According to the early church fathers, the Mark of this Gospel was a disciple of Simon Peter. Peter. And his gospel is based on Peter's accounts in the preaching ministry as he followed uh, Peter around for years and served as his assistant and his secretary. He heard all of these stories that Peter had told about what it meant to follow Jesus. In 1 Peter, the apostle sends greetings from Mark, my son, who was his disciple, who was with him in Babylon. Babylon was a reference to Rome, codename for Rome, 1 Peter 5, 13. Mark was a, co a cousin of Barnabas, uh, one of the other followers of Jesus, Colossians 4.10, after, uh, after the resurrection, and joined Paul in his first missionary journey in Acts. His name was John Mark also. And you might remember part of that story in, the, in that missionary journey that they got into some trouble. You see that Mark could be, or excuse me, that Paul could be a little feisty. And, and we don't know what happened between he and John Mark because John Mark left that mission. But we know later that they were reconciled, thanks to God. That's who Mark is. Who was Mark's audience? The audience of this gospel is most likely Roman Christians. And it's interesting because as you read the different gospels, for example, Matthew is known to be, uh, have its audience primarily as a Jewish audience. And, and Mark's tends to be, scholars believe, to be more of a Gentile audience, a non-Christian audience, or a Roman audience, who were living under the emperor Nero and who was murdering Christians for sport. Well, why do we think it was a Roman audience or a Gentile audience, a non-Jewish audience? Well, Mark often uses Latin phrases that would have been used in a Roman context, things like legion and praetorium and centurion. 
and he goes into detail to explain Jewish customs that you just you wouldn't have to do if it was a, a Jewish audience. We also believe, scholars and biblical students, that the Gospel of Mark was written very, very early and probably is the very first of the Gospels that was written. Most scholars believe that it was written prior to 70 AD when the Roman uh, Empire uh, destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. It is concise, Mark's Gospel. It is early. It was written very, very early after the resurrection of Jesus. And this is why it's so important. If you think about it, after bef- probably before 70 AD. So within the same generation of those people that claim to have seen the resurrected Christ, these are people that Mark and other gospel writers could have gone and interviewed them themselves. Mark was so early and is so fundamental and concise, it's much shorter than the other Gospels, and yet Mark and Matthew share so much of the content that most scholars believe that Mark served sort of as an outline for Matthew and for Luke when they were writing their Gospel stories as well. Now what's interesting about the Gospels is this, is they are historical narrative and they're meant to tell us about the life of Jesus, but it's not historical narrative the way that we would tell it, a history with exact chronology. This happened, then this happened, then this happened. Instead, the Gospel writers will shift stories around in different places, even though they might share a common story or a common theme, because their point was not to say this happened and then this happened and then this happened, but instead to say these things happened, but I want to arrange them in such a way that you understand what I'm trying to tell you about Jesus. Obviously, there's a beginning and there's an end. Mark begins with um, John the Baptist crying out in the wilderness, where Luke and Matthew begin uh, with the birth of Jesus in much detail. And the Gospel of John begins in the beginning, like in the beginning of the universe, there was God, the Word, the Logos. So they have different starting places, different focuses. Very early after Jesus was resurrected, we believe that he wrote this gospel, and he is intense on telling us that there is a movement to the gospel and that we are called to action. One of the words that he uses over 40 times in his gospel is the word immediately, (laughs) which is an interesting word choice, isn't it? And immediately Jesus went here, and immediately Jesus did this, and there's a sense of urgency in this gospel that we should listen That what Jesus has to do and what Jesus has to say is of great import. Finally, what was Mark's main theme? And I want to recommend to you uh, today, later today, later this week, if you really want to dive into the depth of like what Mark is like and its outline, go to YouTube and Google um, the Bible Project, the Gospel of Mark. They have a video for literally every single book of the Bible. Every single book that they've outlined and created a video format, and they show in great detail what the Bible, these books of the Bible are about, and the one for the Gospel of Mark is fantastic. Mark's main theme, one of his primary things is this, that he is a king, and that the, the kingdom of God is at hand in the presence of Jesus Christ. And that's why in, we have a, a crown as our symbol for this series. But the unique thing about this king is unlike almost any other king in their coronation, that the journey on which this king was on, the path upon which he was on, was not leading him to a palace or to a place of comfort or to a place of prestige or wealth or honor, but instead it was to what? You, you know, it was to the cross. And so this is about the story of a king who's ushering in a kingdom 
but it is the most counterintuitive kingdom you could ever possibly imagine because it is not one of earthly power and strength and might, but instead of service and sacrifice, even unto death, because his final victory, his final victory as king was over sin and death and the ultimate restoration of his kingdom, which will come upon his arrival when he returns again. The king and his cross, the king who is a servant. Let's, let's begin. The beginning of the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And verse 1 for, for Mark serves as an interesting point, and it's really the only time in the gospel of Mark that Mark tells us explicitly what's on his mind, where he says, look, this, I'm about to write to you, this is the gospel of, of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And after that, he simply tells us the story of Jesus in his words and in his actions. But in the very first verse, he gives us his opinion. I'm telling you the gospel, this word means good news, of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning. It's the beginning of the good news. And anyone who's a student of the Bible, whether they're Roman or whether they're Hebrew, should hear that. When they hear the word the beginning, they go back to what? If you've been around the Bible much at all, what would you hear in the beginning, right? Genesis 1. John had not been written yet. In the beginning was the Logos. No, he's thinking of Genesis 1. In the beginning there was nothing, and yet there was God, and therefore there began to be everything. And so he is hearkening back to creation, and in a sense what he is saying is this. In the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, God is about to do something fundamentally huge, like in the beginning when he created all things out of nothing. It's that cosmic. It's that big. The gospel is that enormous. Mary Healy, the commentator that I quoted just a moment ago, says this, the good news about Mark is about to tell, is a new beginning, a new work of God, as original as, and stupendous as the creation of the universe. What does gospel mean? The beginning of the gospel. This word gospel, which we use all the time <laughs> at this church, is literally means good news, good news. Its original word is evangelion, and it means good news or joyful tidings. And in that day, it was the good news of the local kingdom. So think in the Roman Empire, when the Roman Empire would receive a victory in battle, especially if it were like oriented towards the king, uh, like Nero or, or the emperor, or if there was a coronation of a new emperor for the Roman Empire, there would be evangelists that would go out into town. So the Evangelion, the good news, this was a word that we took, these gospel writers took from the, the local culture, the Roman culture, and, and started to use. So a, an evangelist in that culture would go to a city and say, rejoice in the good news of Rome because we have had victory over our enemy, right? And, and there would be an announcement and they'd probably blow a horn, and, and then this messenger of good news would say, the Roman Empire has victory over our enemies. 
And now what Mark is doing, he's taking that language from Rome and saying, but us, for us, we have a greater kingdom, a greater empire. Even though we live amidst the kingdom of Rome, no, no, we're in a greater kingdom. And I've got even better news than what Rome can offer. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, I am an evangelist for this gospel, news of victory. But what I'm about to tell you about this king is going to astound you. Jesus, he calls him Jesus, not an unusual name in that culture. It's the Hebrew word for Joshua or Yahshua, which is a derivative from the Old Testament word Yahweh. Joshua, God, Messiah saves, Yahweh saves. And Christ was not his, his last name, his surname, it's his title. Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. Not Jesus Christ's last name. Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the one for whom Israel has been waiting all of these years as the anointed one. That word Christ means Messiah or anointed one. And at the very beginning of Mark, he wants us to know that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus isn't claiming to simply be a way to God. He's not claiming to be an alternative uh, to faith. He's claiming to be the Messiah. And Mark is claiming that he is the Son of God. The Son of God. Now, can we just stop for a second and admit that this rubs us wrong in our culture in our day and age? This is a tough word for many of you. And I'm asking you, if this is you and you say, man, this is the kind of thing, this is why I find Christianity to be so difficult, Jesus is saying he's the only way that's so exclusive, that's so narrow. How, how can I put my hope in a religion that is so narrow-minded as to say it's the only way? Can we admit that that's, that's true? Uh, for many of you, that's true. And that is one of the first, all of a sudden, just in the very first verse of Mark, you're at a, you're at a crossroads. Will I accept Will I accept God's word as his word or, or will I reject it? And let me tell you why I believe and that this isn't wrong to think about accepting. In our culture, we would say it's wrong for people or religions to teach that their view of God is exclusively true, right? I mean, that's, that's, what we, that's the air we breathe in our culture. This is what we're swimming in, right? So it's, it is wrong. It is too exclusive to say that you have the market on religious truth. It's, it's wrong for us to believe that Jesus is exclusively the Messiah because what about all the other world religions? And so we, we should say something much more like they're all probably saying the same thing or they're all equally true. They're all equally valid. Ultimately, all religions are saying the same thing and are leading to the same God. And what I want to challenge us with this morning is, do you see the irony in that statement? How ironic it is for us to say exclusivity is so wrong. It's, it's wrong. Reject exclusivity. But instead, what you're saying is, there's no way that there could only be one religion. You track where I'm following? This is, this is the irony. There's only one way. I'm saying there's only one way to interpret this. There is no one way. But in order to arrive at that conclusion, you've had to step back from all the other world religions and have this philosophical view and understanding that I, of all the people in the world, of all the cultures in the world, and all the history of the world, I have determined 
as a culture and as a people, that there is no one way. But that's just as exclusive of a claim to say that Jesus is the way. It's exactly the same statement. And in the end, you become just as exclusive as the thing you say you hate. It's kind of unavoidable to make a true statement like this. Jesus is declaring to be the way, the truth, and the life. And next, what I want us to see today is that we meet him in the wilderness. And we're going to get into the life a little bit of of John the Baptist and the baptism and and Jesus' baptism and the other aspects of this next week. But Mark quotes from the prophet Isaiah who said that the forerunner or the messenger of God would be a voice crying in the wilderness. And so we read in verses 2 through 3, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. The Christian faith is rooted in the Hebrew faith. They're, They're one story. They're meant to be interpreted as one story. We love the Old Testament as much as we love the New Testament because we believe there's a harmony there between the two. And the Old Testament is telling really the same story as the New and that the New Testament doesn't reject the Old Testament. Instead, it's the, it's the, it's the beginning of the completion of what this God was telling us in the Old Testament, which is this, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And so it's fitting for Mark, a Jewish Christian, to point to Isaiah and actually other Old Testament texts as well in that passage to say, prepare the way of the Lord. There's, a, there's one coming who uh, is, a, is a voice in the wilderness and that, that person was John the Baptist who we'll look at next week. Meeting God in the wilderness is a biblical theme. Moses met God Where? <laughs> He'd he'd been in the palace of Egypt, but then when he was in the wilderness, he met God in a burning bush. Where does Jacob wrestle with God? Let's go back to Abraham. He's with his family. Where does God call him to just go? To a land I will show you, the wilderness. Where does God meet Israel? I'm going to save you from slavery, and I'm going to put you in a desert for 40 years. (laughs) The story of God, when Jesus goes uh, and fasts for 40 days, he goes to the wilderness. This is a biblical theme, Old and New Testament. This idea of the wilderness and God meeting us in the wilderness. What is the wilderness? You live in the wilderness, (laughs) the desert, right? It's a place of need and isolation. It's amazing in the winter. It is difficult in the summer. This is a place where you, can stay, you can't stay alive without intervention from the outside. Can you imagine what life was like in Phoenix before air conditioning? <laughs> what if our highway shut down and, and we could get no uh, food or water here? And this is a place where you can't stay alive without intervention from the outside. There's little or no food there. There's no water. You, you can't survive on your own and you realize you need help. What does it look like for us to be in the wilderness? This is when we experience a time in our life when the resources we rely on run dry. And we have to cry out to God. 
when all of the resources that we normally rely upon, all the things that we build our life upon, all the things upon which we think we have strengths and we have power and we have influence and our life depends on these things, when these run dry and these resources are taken away from us, that is like a, a, a wilderness for us spiritually. And then there is a decision to be made. Will I rely upon God or will I just look for another resource to put my hope in? Your money in the wilderness, you can often see, is not enough. But when things are going well, your money seems to be this amazingly powerful resource to rely upon. Your health is not enough in the middle of the wilderness. Your looks, your personality, your career, your family, your marriage, your kids, you find in the wilderness it's not enough. I thought it was enough, but it isn't. All your resources in the wilderness, they've run dry, and so you have to look to God. And when you get to that place, we can either turn to God or we can choose to believe that we have the wrong resource. And this is what we usually do, right? Like, so my money's run dry, but like, I'm going to get more money. Or this person has rejected me, but I'm going to go find another friend, another lover, another person in my life, whatever it is. I lost my job. I'll get a better one. I have lost my looks. I'll see a surgeon. I'll go to the gym. I'll go on a diet. If I were just more popular, if I had more followers, if I had more money, if I had more stuff, someone to love, better shape, get a promotion, whatever it is, we keep looking for all these other things. When one resource runs dry, we just usually go looking for another resource. But obviously, obviously it's good to work on ourselves, but the wilderness is a time to realize that ultimately we need the Lord, Right? You should get a job if you've lost your job. <laughs> if you're in debt, you should get out of debt. If you don't have money to retire on, you should save. But it's not enough. These things are not enough. Eventually, everything we turn to in life, if we look to it as our ultimate meaning, will let us down. And if you don't think that's true, I want you to do an experiment in the next few days, next few weeks, I want you to start observing the people around you in your life or even just people in culture. But which people? I want you to observe the most successful people you've ever met or that you've ever studied in culture. I want you to, to study the most influential, the strongest, the most beautiful, the richest, the most famous the people with the greatest resources, study them, study their behavior, look into their life. Is it enough for them? Is it enough? You know the answer. You, you know at least the answer I want you to draw. It's not enough, right? If it were enough, I've said this a hundred times from this pulpit, we should be able to go to places in the world and see the incredibly satisfied people. You should be able to go to downtown Manhattan and, and look around and say, here they are. <laughs> They've got to be just joyful, happy people. Have you been to Manhattan? Get out of my way. Like, don't look at me. Like, We should be able to go places in Los Angeles where the happy, joyful, powerful, beautiful, amazingly wealthy people live. And we should be able to go to places even in our own neighborhoods. We should be able to go to Scottsdale Fashion Mall. And just go, you're joyful. You've got to be the most joyful people. Is that what you see? Please do this research. Do this investigation. 
Look at the lives of celebrities, the ultra-rich, the powerful. What do they tell us? They tell us it's never enough. These resources are never enough. So if God has you in a moment of wilderness, would you use this time to draw deep into the well that God has to be your enough? That Jesus, the Messiah, which we're about to study for the next year, he means to be enough for us. He's the Lord. He's the risen Lord. And I want to I take instead of the risen Lord and make some stuff to be my Lord or some money or a person and, and say they will be enough. But Jesus comes along saying, no, I need to be enough for you. I need to be enough for you. And even John the Baptist powerfully got that. I must decrease. He must increase. I must die to myself. I'm not the Messiah. I'm simply the one pointing to the Messiah. Are you in the wilderness? We're going to be in the Gospel of Mark so long, even if you're not now, you could be by the time we get out. <laughs> I'm not in the wilderness right now. I'm not. Things are good. I've got a few challenges. My second son's about to go to college. I feel blue about that. But the truth is, I'm not in the wilderness. But I, I know what the wilderness is like. And I was there recently. And I'm glad to be out of it. But in the, in the wilderness, you learn things about the Lord you will not learn in places of pleasure and goodness and when times are easy. If you're in the wilderness, a time when you're being stripped of everything you can normally count on, it's scary, but I encourage you, in the wilderness, open up your heart more than ever. It's where you can meet God powerfully. As we study the Gospel of Mark we're going to see that Jesus Christ is the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's ushering in his beautiful, incredible, eternal kingdom in just a foreshadowing now. It was in power with his personal presence. We have a taste of it now, but it's the promise of his coming victory. But look at this king. And I love this about Jesus. I love this about Jesus. This is the king but he never uses his power for his own glory, but to serve others. This is the, the king, the king. And his, his pillow is out in the desert with his poor disciples. They have no pillow to lay their head upon. They're, they're poor. They're, they're out. They're healing others. Their lives are about others in service. This is the king. This is the king of kings. This is the Lord of lords. And yet he doesn't come to be served, but to be servant to all. And ultimately, his journey, this path he's on, is not leading to a throne room, but to a cross. Because the king of kings and Lord of lords wants to overcome sin and death so much that he's willing to lay all down, even for the likes of us. And he didn't do it just for us individually, but he did do it for us corporately. He did it for all of us. He, he is the king and king and Lord of lords in order to save a people for himself. And we are among those people if we put our hope and trust in him. That his death, his life, his resurrection is the death of our death and the death of our sin. And we have union with him in his resurrection. I look forward to being with you in the Gospel of Mark for these several months the steady diet, sweet potato chili and Jesus, and it's going to be good. Let's pray. Oh Lord, as we 
often confess our sins here every week, we, our, our hearts will agree right now in this moment, perhaps, that you, you really are enough. But just even later today, we will quickly turn to other resources and say, I'm going to look to that. And during this study of your gospel, may your people here grow less and less attached to, to these other resources and to realize that you really are the king of our life. You're, you alone are worthy of our full heart's attention. And may we truly rest under your authority as king and Lord of lords. We ask this in Jesus' good name. Amen.